Church, we're going to be in uh, Luke chapter 2. We are uh, in a series that we started last week entitled Jesus for Everyone. And uh, we're flying over the book of Luke and the book of Acts together. Uh, Both of these books written by a follower of Jesus named Luke. And these two books are structured to be read as one big story. Some important things to remember as we, as we um, I guess, reintroduce ourselves to this sermon series is that Luke gives us theology through story. We, want, we, we might want Luke to give us a little bit more flat-out statements, but the way that, that Luke goes about writing to us is that he's a storyteller. And so is, it, it is this powerful invitation to have an ongoing dialogue with his writings to find the way that he creates one big story, but his medium is stories. He's weaving stories together to teach us theology, to give us insight about who Jesus is. Uh, Luke opens Luke opens with his purpose for, for weaving these stories together. And he tells us in the opening verses of the book of Luke, it's so that we can be certain of the truth that everything that we have been taught And what's this truth that we desire to be certain of? That Jesus is Lord of all. And this good news about Jesus is for all people. That we would be more certain that Jesus is for everyone. And that includes you. That you would find hope, life, and joy in Jesus. The other uh, thing that we talked about when we launched this this series last week is that Luke often pairs stories of women and men together. We'll bring it up on the screen, and you'll see a chart of about 32, 34 different times that Luke pairs together a story of a man and a woman. And it's a way for him to communicate that the story of Jesus, the news of Jesus, touches everybody. But what he also does is, again, telling uh, theology or giving us theology through story is that as he pairs these different stories together, there's something that he's communicating to us. And there are all these different themes that Luke has over his uh, writing of the book of Luke and Acts. And this morning's theme that we're going to be talking about will sound a bit academic, Um, But this morning's theme is we're talking about Jesus and the history of Israel. Jesus and the history of Israel, and we're going to do that through the gender pairing of uh, Simeon and Anna, who were both in the temple when the baby Jesus was brought in to be dedicated. Um, But I hope as you interact with this rich theological theme, Jesus and the history of Israel, that you would be filled with hope for today. And so that's why we're also calling uh, this morning Jesus for those that are waiting. Jesus for those that are waiting. Waiting can be a time of great pain, but waiting can also be a time of great celebration and anticipation. Um, waiting, I think about my uh, now six-year-old son who knocked on our door at very early this morning to say, do I get any birthday presents today? 
his whole world is filled with excited waiting. What might the day look like for him this on his sixth birthday? But waiting can be a place of dread. It can be a place of where we are not certain around what might be around the next corner. It might be a meeting that's ahead of us. It might be news that we're waiting on. It just, we find that a lot of times waiting can be a place of, of sorrow and anguish. Last year, uh, when we were on our summer vacation, we, we got an Airbnb in just a remote place in Idaho. We were about an hour south of Yellowstone National Park, and um, we also decided to take a drive one day to go from um, this remote part of Idaho all the way over to Jackson Hole, Wyoming. And as we did, it was just a vast open of nothingness. <laughs> No, it was a vast openness of just rolling hills that were in front of us as we were making this drive. And as we were making this drive, I soon discovered that I was actually feeling really stressed as I was driving. Um, because what was ahead of us were these rolling hills, and they were long, slow, uh, rolling hills. And the trouble was is that you couldn't really see over the top of them. And so is that as you were going over these hills, you were filled with this, like, I'm not sure what's on the other side of them. If you've ever drove and driven in an uh, just open country road where you have those rolling hills, again, I was stressed out. And I looked over at Larissa, and I was just like, I, I'm feeling tense right now because I don't know what's over that next hill. Like, I just feel like I'm going to go over this next hill, and then all of a sudden there's going to be, like, nothing or I'm going to go over this next hill and there might be a buffalo. Or I might go over this next hill and it's just this really sharp turn and I might be driving too fast. But as I look to her to, to talk about how stressed I am and what's next on the road, she's just filled with joy and delight. For her, it was like this nostalgic moment where she was being transported to those places in her life where she lived in these remote places of the country. And she was just enjoying the scenery. She was looking out into the fields with, with this other expectancy, that there might be a bald eagle out there, or there might be a moose out there. Or there might, but it was just like it was a place of delight. And I think I tell both of those to say that we've all experienced these two different kinds of expectancy. We've, we've all experience these two different types of roads. One where we're filled with angst. We're not sure what's over the next hill. And we've also experienced this place of just delight. I'm looking forward to what's over the next hill. I'm filled with expectation over what's the next hill. But regardless of, of those two spaces, I believe that the Lord's word to us, because it is actually literally written down for us, is to hear this. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And so what we can all know in our places of waiting, not entirely sure what's around the next corner, is this, that whatever might be ahead of us, God will be there also. Let's go to the book of Luke, starting in verse 25 of chapter 2. It says, At that time there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was a righteous 
and devout, he was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him, and he had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day, the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord, as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people, Israel. Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, the baby's mother, this child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your very soul. Anna, a prophet, was also there in the temple. She was the daughter of Phanuel the of the tribe of Asher, and she was very old. Her husband died when they had been married only seven years. Then she lived as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshiping God with fasting and prayer. She came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God she talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. When Jesus' parents had fulfilled all the requirements of the law of the Lord, they returned home to Nazareth in Galilee. There the child grew up healthy and strong. He was filled with wisdom, and God's favor was on him. Again, we look at the story of um, Simeon and Anna, and the, there's one crucial element that I want you to be able to discover in, in Luke intentionally pairing them together. Luke, I believe, is, is wanting us to capture this one very important element, that they are waiting, and their waiting is the, in the context of being the people of Israel. He makes sure to identify that it is very important for us to realize and just even in these short sentences, you see just how packed it is that it is rich. It is rich with the language of the people of Israel. It's very intentional by Luke that we start here when we start talking about Jesus. It starts with the story of the Hebrews. It starts with the story of Israel. There was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. Anna, a prophet, was also there in the temple. These two people become a bridge to all of the Old Testament. All that was said before this moment is going to find its culmination and its continuation from here and this point forward. And let's honor and understand the longing of Israel. Because sometimes we read the gospel narratives and we just have this account to think that the, the Jewish people just got it all wrong. But Luke writes with so much more nuance and complexity than that. What he writes for us in the opening pages of his gospel account is he talks about faithful and devout Zechariah, he talks about faithful and devout Elizabeth, who was filled with the Holy Spirit. He talks about Mary, who is called noticed and favored by God. 
And here is Simeon, righteous and devout, and Anna is described as a prophet. Luke paints for us a picture of a remnant of devout and faithful people who are filled with hope and expectation that God is going to arise. There are also a people navigating points of pain and suffering. Each one of them, we, Luke brings out for us places of suffering. Zechariah and, and Elizabeth's story is a story of barrenness. Mary's story will be that her faithfulness in following God's plan for her will mean rejection. Simeon is described as being eager in his waiting, and Anna is introduced to us by, by the fact that she lost her husband at an extremely young age. So here we find that you have a faithful, devout people that are filled with expectation for God to arise, and this is also a people that are in a place of deep pain and anguish. And it's in both of those spaces that, that, that Luke get, brings us to his narrative and says, this is, this is how I want you to understand the place that Israel finds herself. And, and so the, the wrinkles of Simeon and Anna, I think, are meant to evoke in us an understanding of where Israel finds herself. That it is, it is a people that are, have been in a place of long, long waiting. And I think a little message for us just right now is this. The Bible doesn't stray away from telling the stories of people who have been waiting for God for years upon years. The Bible doesn't stray away from that, but is constantly introducing us to people who have been waiting for God, and God has been silent for decades. For decades. Their story maps onto the length of Israel's waiting for God to rescue them. And friends, can we admit, we are a people that are bad at waiting. We're a people that are bad at waiting. You could try it this, this week ahead, maybe on the drive home, sitting at a red light, and intentionally don't go for two seconds. Two seconds and watch the responses of the cars around you. <laughs> Two. I recently placed a sticker on the back of my phone. You likely can't read it from the place that you're sitting, but it just says here, be still. Be still. And here's the story behind it. I discovered that my grabbing my phone was shortcutting the process of my emotional and mental processing. Because uh, what I would found, I, I mean, I could just be doing something fun. I could be sitting down with the boys, and we could be playing sorry together, and my phone would be there, and I would just, for some reason, just grab it, because it was there. And I would open up an app, and I would scroll through it, and then I'd put it back down and engage back with the boys. And, and I just found, man, this isn't, this isn't where I want to be. This isn't what I want to be about the, the, the default of my living, is that there's my phone, and then maybe in the midst of something that I need to pay attention to, that maybe in a place of stress, 
that maybe in a decision that I need to be making, that all of a sudden, rather than actually sitting with the tension and the anxiousness of that moment, I have something that has become a coping device. I have, I have something that lives forever with me that I can grab and look through rather than actually be someone that is still. You know, statistics tell us that we touch our phones about 100 times a day. The average, documented a couple of years ago, is that we spend around three hours a day on our phone, which is about a month and a half of our year. Now imagine how challenging it would be for a people in this kind of culture to be good at going through the healthy process of working through their interior life. We are not a people that are good at waiting. And in our years and years of waiting on God, we, we don't experience the grace of his formation because we have too many things to distract us while we wait. We're in line. We're on our phone. We're at a red light. We're on our phone. We're in the bathroom. <laughs> We're on our phone. And we discover that there's not a stillness about us. So when problems arise, we can avoid those problems by the noise and the distraction of the world around us. And the result is an anxiousness and a pain that stays unresolved within us. And often what we end up doing is picking up and trying to go somewhere else where that pain and anxiousness does not exist. But the reality is it goes with us. But we are just really good at being distracted. The picture of these opening characters is of a mature people who are good at waiting. Anna fasted and prayed. That is a description of a woman who isn't avoiding or turning away to something else as a coping mechanism. But this is a woman who is intentionally leaning in to the Lord that he might meet her in her place of waiting. The grace of God has been with them while they have been waiting on God. And here's the paradox that we should all live with. While we are on waiting on God to show up, we are experiencing the Lord's abiding presence. While Luke presents Anna as mature and devout, an absolute powerhouse of a lady, he also captures that she's fasting. And the implication is there is something wrong in Jerusalem. All is not as it should be. The word that I want you to have in your mind right now is the word exile. Exile. Exile is an incredibly powerful imagery that gets pulled forward into the New Testament. The story of exile is that Israel was unfaithful. They followed other gods, 
acted with corruption and perversion, so God sent conquering nations, and they were pulled away from their land and had to live in foreign lands. But now, when we find ourselves in the pages of the New Testament, the, the description and understanding of exile is still with the people of Israel, even though they are still currently, even though they are living in the land that is their home. And, 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 and it's this tension that exists because it's this picture of a people that are in their home, but that space, that land is not their home because there are other nations that are at power in their home. And again, the, what the New Testament does is powerfully brings this imagery forward for us to understand that we live in that same dynamic. That while we are at home, we look at the world around us and realize we are not at home. And now that place of exile is a place of waiting. It is this place where we realize that God, yes, God dwells with us, but we also live with this hope and expectancy that he will arrive in new and fresh ways in the world around us. Every day we are reminded that we are exiles. Certainly the story of our friends from Ukraine, from the Father's house, who are now living in Germany, tell the story of a people who are quite literally living as exiles. And then our own points of pain and waiting are reminders we are in exile. Disease, death, violence, fractured relationships, unmet longings, desires, and dreams constantly <clears throat> remind us our home hasn't fully arrived yet. We are a people of waiting. And that shapes our prayer life. That shapes who we are as the people of God. And that is why the prayer that is so often upon our lips, Jesus, let your kingdom come, let your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. That is a prayer of the exile. We pray constantly with longing in our hearts, but hope, God, let our real home be seen here in the world around us. We believe that in our waiting, you will arrive. You will show up, and heaven will meet earth more and more and more in the this, in this space around us. The other imagery that is at place is the imagery of an empty temple. Anna fasts not because something is wrong in the land of Jerusalem. We can zoom in even closer and see that something is wrong in the very temple of the people of God. Israel's most sacred space is a place of lament and longing because while the temple was rebuilt, the current experience is, is the temple seems to be absent. The temple is there, but there's no sense of having God returned. And you can imagine that as the people of Israel, as they're navigating that, that that is a place of deep, deep disorientation. 
The very last pages of the Old Testament in the prophet Malachi writes this, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. It's the word of the Lord and says, look, I'm sending my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. Then the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple. They have been sitting on this word for 400 years. For 400 years, they have been in this temple crying out, God, would we see your presence Fill the walls of this temple once again. And Anna is fasting and praying. The continuation of the prayers and the fasting of the people of Israel for 400 years. God, we want to see you dwelling in this temple once again. They worship, but they're also waiting. And friends, don't miss out on this. They are in a worship center, a sanctuary, a most holy and sacred space set apart for the meeting of God, and there's no sense of God's presence. And if you've ever been in that space, that is an extremely discouraging and disorienting space. I was meant I was led to believe that if I step into this space set apart by you for me to meet you, that you would be here. And you're not. And I don't understand why. Eugene Peterson says it this way. The story in which the story in which God does his saving work arises among a people whose primary experience of God is his absence. If you go back and read through the pages of the Old Testament, what you will discover is that so many of the stories are about a people that are sitting in a space where God The Bible doesn't stray away from that. It doesn't shy away from that. Eugene Peterson goes, goes on. He says, this seemingly unending stretch of the experience and of the absence of God is reproduced in most of our lives, and most of us don't know what to make of it. The absence of God is part of the story, and it is, it is neither exceptional nor preventable, nor a judgment on the way we are living our lives. Whether the experience of absence is measured in weeks, months, or years, for most of us, it doesn't fit into what is normal in our understanding of salvation. But it is normal. The pages of Scripture normalize a people that sit in a place where God seems to be absent and silent. That's, the part, that's part of the story of salvation. Loved ones, the best that I can describe it to you is that in his goodness and wisdom, God sometimes chooses for us to experience his absence in silence. There's something about what he seeks to develop and form within us 
that he knows will happen through waiting and longing. The crucible of silence and absence will be a place of great development for those that endure. Strength will rise for those that wait upon the Lord. There's something about being in that holy and sacred space of silence, of longing and waiting, that something deep can be formed within our lives. And I don't know why. I don't know why. It can't be formed in other places. But the testimony of the followers of Christ have been that place of waiting and longing is a place of deep and good formation. It is a place that the Lord faithfully meets us. Thomas Merton put it well when he said, God who is everywhere never leaves us. Yet he seems sometimes to be present, sometimes absent. If we do not know him well, we do not realize that he may be more present to us when in when he is absent than when he is present. But if we're honest, we are quick to run away from that space. We would rather conclude that God is not here, so I must, under my own power, find another path forward. And the tragedy of the story is that you look at people like Adam and Eve and Abraham, and you just continue to go forward, and you'll continue to find a people who were stuck in their waiting and tried to go forward under their own power, and it was devastating. But God was faithful to meet them in their places of waiting. God was faithful to show up again and again and again. Let's go back to Eugene Peterson. He said it this way. He says, the salvation story is a God story. It is God doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. It is also God doing this in his own way and not to our dictates or preferences. He does not consult us regarding matters of timing. This requires constant iteration. We humans, with our deep-seated pretensions to being gods, are endlessly preoccupied with worrying and tinkering with matters of salvation as if we were in charge of it. But we are not God carries out the work of salvation, not to be sure, without participation, but it is God's work done in God's way. Simeon and Anna have read Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, and they are faithfully waiting for God's promise to become reality. God will fill this temple once again. Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, is probably a regular prayer and promise that they hold on to. And then a baby. A baby is carried into the temple. They had no idea that this is the way that salvation was going to play out. God had promised he will dwell in this temple once again. And here comes a poor girl from a remote village carrying an infant. And it is the fulfillment of God's promise. God is in the temple once again. And salvation does not look like how they anticipated it. 
to show up, but God's salvation shows up nonetheless. God does show up. I want to take you from Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, to Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. But for you, sunrise, the sun of righteousness will dawn on those who honor my name, healing, radiating from its wings. Let's consider the example of the sun, Justo Gonzalez writes. Every dawn is different from the ones that preceded it, but dawn always comes. That's why we count on a new dawn tomorrow, because we see a pattern of the sun's rising. The Lord is faithful to keep his promises. The Lord is faithful to show up. And here's why it is so important that we start with the story of Israel. Because what we must see is that God is faithful to the story of Israel. The gospel account is not this. It's not that God saw that he, he, he chose Israel, but he saw that they constantly messed up and they were constantly unfaithful, so he, he, he moves them out of the way and starts the story afresh. That is not the gospel account, but unfortunately, a lot of times, that's the way that we present it. And if we present it that way, then we are worshiping a God that is not faithful to his covenant promises. God must be faithful to Israel, and the story must culminate and continue through the story of Israel, because if it does not, then God is not a promise-keeping God. But because we discover in the opening pages of the New Testament that God is, is faithful to his promise to the people of Israel, then we can be assured that he will be faithful in his promises to us. He is a promise-keeping God. By rightly placing the story of Jesus within the history of Israel, we realize that God is a God who returns to his people. He is a God that shows up. He is a God that keeps his promises. We discover in ancient and new ways that God keeps his word. He will arrive to those that are waiting on him. And even more than that, he will pursue those that have abandoned him or have lost view of him because what we see by setting it rightly within the context of God's faithfulness to Israel is this ongoing tension that the gospel accounts present of a people who have wandered away and then you discover whether or not they will recognize and embrace Jesus or not recognize him and reject him. But, he is faithful nonetheless to constantly show up to his people. God keeps his covenant promises. The promise has to flow through Israel because God gave his word. I want to bring up the, the, um, the words of, of Simeon here on the screen, and we'll close with this. When we're first introduced to, to Simeon, what we read is, is that there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and to rescue Israel. And then he holds Jesus. And watch what happens to his expectations. Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, 
which you have prepared for all people. He is the light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people, Israel. There was something about looking upon the countenance of Jesus that just exploded Simeon's expectations. There was something about the countenance of Jesus that, that took Simeon's expectations. God, I'm waiting for you to come and rescue Israel. He holds Jesus, and then his prayer is, you save all nations. And in there is a lesson for us, the church, that as we wait upon Jesus, and he faithfully meets us in that place of waiting, that it gives an expansive view to our expectations. That suddenly we realize that he is a God that wants to show up for all people. Suddenly we realize that as we sit and bask in the presence of Jesus, our understanding of what he longs to do in our world isn't just for us personally, but it's for all the people around us. There is just something about holding on to Jesus that, that changes what we hope to happen in our places of waiting. We're going to move to the, to the communion um, table right now. And as we do, I'm going to read to you what the Apostle Paul writes to us. He says, For I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it into pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people. An agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. And here's the language of waiting and expectancy. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. The communion table is a place of waiting. But in that place of waiting, right, we're, God, it, it's, it's, this, it's this formative space where our hearts are being shaped to have a great expectancy that God will meet us here in this space, but that he's also doing a good work in the world around us. This, this space is a place where we confess, constantly confess, God, you are coming again. You are coming to this world that we live in. And every time that we partake of this bread in this cup, we do so with an expectancy that you are going to arrive in the world around us. You are going to arrive to and show yourself to our neighbors, to our friends, to our co-workers, to the people that we live with, right? that God will be God that arrives. And beloved, we can be confident. Because we have seen him faithful to the people of Israel, we can be confident. The God who was faithful, is faithful, and will always be faithful. I'm going to walk down here. I'm going to give you 